Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're back. It feels like after yet another long delay, um, doesn't get any, uh, life does not seem to get less busy, uh, these days. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Every time we think we're like checking something else off, then the next thing is, is coming on. I guess, I guess that means we're becoming like adults, but <laughs> whatever. Yeah. First week of the new, uh, new internship, right? Yeah, new internship, new classes, but like we said, it's just on, on to the next thing. On to the next. New new facial hair. The the fans will love to see that. Uh, well, it is 5.53 on this lovely Thursday, May 27th evening. Um, what are we talking about this week? This week, we have a single episode issue, and we haven't done one of these in a long time. And the single episode this week is going to be focused on the the international crisis that has been unfolding in Israel and Palestine over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to try to handle it as as carefully, as thoughtfully, as intellectually as we can. I think from the the start, anybody listening out there, this isn't listening to me to you guys. Like we're admittedly not experts on this topic. Um, there are times well hopefully like i said we're going to handle it with as much care as we can but we understand that this is a particularly sensitive issue for a lot of people out there there are a lot of really strong feelings about it um, we had talked to a couple people about maybe coming on uh, there was some reluctance to do so it, it's which to me just shows how much of like a third rail issue this is it doesn't seem to be any any winning in in this art clearly there's no winning in, in this overall argument but um i think the point today rick is not to have an argument but really to try to break down what's going on from both sides and to try to give weight to both sides and and see where you and i come out on it at the end uh we haven't talked much about it so i'm excited to hear hear your thoughts on it uh, but that, that's really that's the plan for for this week yeah definitely um you know a topic that at almost at any time in, you know, the history of the podcast and the history of like the last 40, 50 years is, is this a debate, a discussion worth having, but also one um, that is, that is very difficult to have. And, you know, we talked about this offline that it was like, I think we need to talk about, we absolutely need to talk about it, but it's also going to be something that we're um, apprehensive to, to say. And, and, you know, to your point, I think, we want to make it clear that we in, in anything that we try and talk about um, that, that our objective is always to sort of review the situation as objectively as possible and provide context uh, that we think helps us understand what's happening, but understanding this issue that is so multifaceted um, that extends back um, you know, it's, it's, 
you know, some pieces of it, maybe not that old, but some pieces of it extend back potentially like thousands of years. And, we have, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so we'll, we're going to try and do that. Um, and I guess we would, we would say certainly if, if anyone's listening and they feel like, Hey, you totally missed this. And we think this is the most important aspect or you're, you know, by leaving this out or by emphasizing this, you've distorted the reality. I think we, we would love to hear, um, more, um, because, you know, while we're not experts, this is certainly something that, uh, you know, I know that I've spent a lot of time reading about, but I read, you know, the sources that I read and they tell the story in the, in the way that I understand it. So it, it, it's not necessarily always the whole picture. And that's, you know, really what we're trying to get at here. Yeah. And we, we've talked about that before where, it's been really great when people reach out to us after episodes and say that, you know, you think, we think you, you maybe missed something here. You got something wrong. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to come on the podcast to discuss it. Although people are certainly welcome to do that if that's where you're so inclined, but even just a text to us or you know, a message on Instagram, like those type of things uh, where you are, like you said, like the purpose of this podcast has been to have, difficult conversations. And I don't think it would be right of us to say that this conversation is too difficult to have, you know, kind of going back to what like Salome was talking about when we, when we did like the justice and and policing type stuff a a couple of episodes ago, where it's like, just because maybe we're a little more comfortable having that conversation, because maybe we've had them before, we're a little more steeped in some experience having them. It was a hard conversation, but maybe I just felt personally, maybe a little more comfortable having that in, in, as opposed to a conversation like this, where I feel like I have less experience having these conversations, but uh, one, I'm glad we're having it. And two, I'm glad that we have waited to have it. Uh, I, I think, you know, if we had recorded this the, the first day where kind of everything popped off, I would have had opinions. And then a weekend I would have had maybe slightly different opinions. And at least now, you know, knock on wood, things have calmed down a little bit and hopefully we can continue to work to a resolution as like an international community. But um, at least we can, maybe we step it's I feel like there's a little less emotion at least on my end now to be able to step back and and try to analyze you know everything that happened over the past couple of weeks yeah and it feels maybe just a little bit more appropriate now that there is this uh, you know a a perhaps tenuous but there is a ceasefire in place and um the situation those those still you know very tense and um, obviously there was much devastation in sort of the, the 12, 12 day yeah. period. Um, and, and we'll try and talk about, about that specifically, uh, here it's, it feels a little better, um, to, to, to start to try and peel back what we think are some of the broader issues and, um, the try and get away from a lot of the black and white, uh, kind of media portrayals of of what's going on because there is certainly you know there are always elements of right and wrong in every situation um but at the same time it's usually never as simple as that that's well said all right uh before we really get into it just to remind everybody this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman at cannon hill woodworking building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in boston since 2018 Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, the guys at Cannon Hill would like to remind you that trickle down economics only works if you open your wallet and stop buying cheap crap online. <laughs> there we go. 
as, as always, a little, little levity probably particularly needed this episode. Uh, all right, so let's get into it. Uh, Ricky, as you said, we're going to try to provide a really basic rudimentary history. It would be impossible to do over the course of an hour of a day. We understand that. What we're doing now is the, the barest bones overview, but just to try to provide a little context to, like I said, what, what has unfolded in recent weeks. But we're going to start going back, as you noted, a couple thousand years. But before we get into that, you made a really nice point about history in general. So even though you and I are going to try to walk through the history as we know it and understand it, what you were saying about history is important. Yeah, well, I, it, I think a, a lot of um, what I, you know, maybe didn't understand as a, a high school history student, um, but I'm coming, still still trying to uh, come more to, to terms with um, that history, as much as it is taught as kind of uh, like an objective recollection of um, how things happened, they are invariably told by certain with certain perspectives um, and depending on the perspectives that you're getting that history from, they can have very, very different. Uh, they can leave you with very different impressions of, you know, what happened and who was right and who was wrong. Um, but anyways, we're going to, we're going to do our, we'll do our darndest. Yeah. We, whatever. We put out enough disclaimers yeah. Yeah. You know, at this point. So if you're at this point, if you're still listening, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to start by going back really a couple thousand years to talk about uh, Jerusalem, the city in particular, and, and then, you know, Israel and Palestine and, and the Holy land in general and why it's so significant. Uh, you know, arguably the most, one of, if not the most significant city in, in, the, in the world in human history, um, certainly in, in the last you know, 10,000 years. Uh, so it's, it's special to each of the three Abrahamic major religions of, of the world. So for Judaism, for Christianity, and for Islam, um, it, it holds special, a special place in each of those religions. So um, for maybe most obviously for Jews, uh, this Jerusalem was the place where uh, King David moved his capital back in like the 10th century BCE. And that's where famously like King Solomon's temple was built and, and the, the second temple was built. The, the Western Wall, which still exists, is uh, a remnant of the, of the second temple and is a, a major Jewish holy site. Uh, the Temple Mount is, is also um, there, which is you know, the, the preeminent Jewish holy site. And synagogues around the world are are built so that the ark is is facing towards uh, Jerusalem. Uh, for Christians, all of that matters because that's all really Old Testament stuff that still um, holds significant weight in Christianity. But uh, also, Jesus, after he was born, was uh, shortly after he was born, he was taken um, to Jerusalem. He he went to the second temple, a second temple, and, and cleansed it uh, in the New Testament. Uh, his last supper was believed to have been on, on Mount Zion, which is, I believe the same, the same mountain that houses the tomb of King David. So uh, the connection between Judaism and Christianity, obviously um, probably most people know this, but Jesus was a Jew. Uh, And then Jesus was crucified in Golgotha, which was, uh, which is also in and around um, Jerusalem. Uh, And finally, Jerusalem is also uh, the third holiest city in Islam. I primarily due to the, the belief of Muslims uh, through uh, 
the Quran that Muhammad was transported to Jerusalem to to meet with the previous prophets of of um, of, of Islam and, and to uh, to get like the I guess I want to say it to it's to get kind of like the the teachings and commandments that he was going to bring to his people. Um, it's also uh, the place where um, many Muslims believe that uh, Muhammad ascended into heaven. So just from like a these are the three major, uh, three of the major world religions. They're all very much intertwined. And we could, again, spend all day trying to get into how they're deeply they're intertwined. But it's just a significant city um, for all of these religions. As people probably know, it, it has uh, a long and, and Jerusalem has a long and tortured history of, of changing hands and, and violence in and around it to claim the city largely for religious reasons. And so uh, the Crusades are probably the most famous example of that in, in the Middle Ages, where you know, warriors from you know, Europe, you know, feuded, uh, fought, went to Jerusalem to, to fight uh, the Arab Muslims that, that were currently there. Uh, it changed hands a number of times in the mid, you know, like the middle, I would say the Middle Ages. So from like eight, 900 to 12, 13, 1400, it changed hands several times. Uh, ultimately, it came into the possession of the Ottoman Empire, um, I believe in like the 16th century, so like the 1500s. And the Ottoman Empire was a, a massive empire through um, much of the Middle East and, and parts of North Africa and Europe um, for hundreds of years. And Israel, the, the land that is now Israel and Palestine, was under the control of the Ottoman Empire through World War I when um, the Ottoman Empire was defeated in World War One, the Ottoman Empire was uh, allied with, uh, you know, Germany and uh, Italy in in that. Or now I'm getting that wrong. I think whatever. Um, but uh, they were defeated by largely by Britain in uh, in World War One, and after that, that was pretty much the end of the Ottoman Empire as as a major world power and. Israel at that time, after World War I, 1917, 1918, um, transferred to British control. And I will let you pick it up from there. Yeah. And so this is where sort of um, the religious story gets, you know, very muddled with kind of the political significance of um, Jerusalem, sort of present day Palestinian territory where Israel is now. Um, so strategically, the British have always wanted uh, either to control that area or to have a very friendly party controlling that area because of its importance um, in securing the trade route through the Suez Canal. Um, additionally, yeah, th- there's there are a lot of kind of the same types of racial components um, that surface in in so much of history especially with the british empire so obviously you know you 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 mentioned the arabs that were there but the uh there was also a a smaller jewish population still there despite sort of being under the control of the ottoman empire um people may have heard us sort of if they're not as familiar with the ottoman empire it's sort of headquartered in Constantinople, which is, you know, present day Istanbul. Um, And that kind of region um, had a lot of significance. So obviously the British empire at that time, you know, early 20th century extended from their 
pretty much down, you know, absent like a, a, a space in the Middle East down through and in, into present day India, um, what before partition was also India, including Pakistan. Um, so we'll, we'll see some themes of, of as the British Empire leave or, you know, as the as the Brits leave places um, that that they kind of leave behind. Uh, a bit of a power vacuum. And, and I think we'll, we'll see some of that, but um, you know, for, for specific milestones. And again, I, I, yeah, I think we've done all the disclaimers we could possibly do. So I'll I'll try and stop, but, but, you know, noting that I'll be skipping a lot of years in between um, in 1917 uh, sort of the, sort of the tail end of world war one the British, uh, released this the this Balfour Declaration, which essentially said that they were in favor of establishing a Jewish homeland um, with Jeru- like in and around um, Jerusalem with present day Israel, um, or like creating a state that that we would sort of recognize as present day Israel. They had a lot of reasons for that. None of them were uh, particularly like pro-Judaism. Um, a lot of them had to do with specific strategic alliances that they were trying to uh, create and or maintain um, as they were trying to see through the end of World War I. Um, history buffs will, will remember that, that um, also like World War II, uh, at the beginning, it, things were not exactly looking great for the Allied forces Germans were making a lot of advances in different territories, and there were a number of different um, parties that were potentially going to to uh, to drop out. and And they were, and through this Balfour Declaration, they were trying to consolidate some support um, in certain countries that they thought would respond well to to that sort of you know uh, proclamation. And then, sort of fast forward, that doesn't. <clears throat> quite manifest itself, obviously, after World War I. Um, but after World War II, there's kind of a renewed push uh, to establish kind of a two-state area um, in and around Israel. So, or in, 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 that, in that general area. Um, so there's like a, a UN resolution that, that tries to create a two-state solution, an Arab state and a Jewish state. Um, and it's, it actually designates Jerusalem itself um, as a as a separate entity, kind of like the way Vatican City is a separate entity within within um, Italy. Um, this would have sort of said that Jerusalem will be um, controlled by kind of the international community, and we'll have the the two states around. Um, however, at that time, a, you know is what is present day Israel was very much a fledgling um, entity. I'm not entirely sure what the right word is for it. Um, And many of the Arab nations in and around the area sort of felt like they would be able to just push them out and not deal with a two state solution and actually be able to claim that entire area for, for uh, as like a single Arab state, um, so there's like a, a war in 1948 um, in which actually it, Israel uh, is, is actually victorious and they're able to establish a state um, at that time. Um, 
No, I mean, so this is where sort of the telling of the history, I think, becomes important, because if you hear it from sort of one side, it's like it's that, you know, th there was a proposition for a two state solution and the Arab majority rejected it. If you hear it told from the other side, it's that, well, you know, 75 to 80 percent of the population in that area was Arab and the two state solution actually split it almost 50 50. Um, and so, you know, depending on who you're talking to, this was an unfair and untenable agreement, or this is something that, you know, had we had this compromise, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation that we are today, right? And so this kind of, this kind of uh, dynamic evolves over the next 50 years, you have multiple different um, battles, skirmishes, um, the first intifada, which is essentially and an, was an uprising because what, what ended up happening is though Israel, although Israel became a state, um, the Palestinian territory did not actually, because they were not recognizing the state of Israel, could not actually establish their own. Well, I'm not sure if the, the because is the right word there, but they did not actually establish their own state. Um, and so many of their territories were surrounded by uh, what is present day Israel. And so there were um, uprisings that were in, in many, I mean, in all, in all respects, essentially uh, violently shut down. Um, and then, you know, fast forward again to the, to the nineties, we had a, <clears throat> another peace accord that tried to redraw the lines, both extreme sides of the uh of the Israeli-Palestinian divide were unhappy because they didn't feel like they needed to cede additional territory. Um, the Israeli prime minister at the time was actually assassinated by a right-wing uh, Israeli group. So his name was Yitzhak Rabin. He was assassinated in 90, ooh, 93 or four. Um, and eventually the, that peace accord, so the Oslo Accords never really manifested either. Um, and then we have I hate I you know hesitate to say the rest is history, but um, suicide bombings in in the early 2000s, um, shortly after kind of 9/11, and I think that'll be a little bit important for our discussion. Um, really intensified a lot of the security measures that um, Israel was putting on these Palestinian territories, particularly the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. <clears throat> and um, is leading to what many, many outside observers are calling a, a humanitarian crisis um, because there's like a blockade and not a free movement of goods or services or people. Um, and it kind of leads us to where we are today, you know, with history sort of in this cycle of um, there's, there's, there's violence and then the international community pays attention and then there's, you know, a quote unquote peace deal. Um, and we don't, um, and then we don't hear much about it anymore. Um, and in, in through all this, there's, you know, settlement expansion. There are, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money being moved around within these areas. A lot of corruption, a lot of military spending. Um, and I think, unfortunately, maybe the one thing that will not be controversial is that 
There's a lot of civilian suffering and a lot of people living in fear. And so that's maybe a nice place or a sad, but a, a solid place to leave the, the history. And that's for context. Uh, we'll give everyone a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get into how that history relates to everything that's happened over the past two weeks. Jerusalem, if I forget you, fire and a gun come from me tongue. Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. All right, so that brings us up until about May 10th, so a couple of weeks ago now. And just a few other things for present day context, because we can we can really not possibly provide enough, is that the holiest month in Islam is this month called Ramadan. And Ramadan was was happening from, I think, April 12th to, to May 12th. So May 10th was really like the end of Ramadan, where you have... Uh, Eid, uh, which is a feast that to celebrate the end of Ramadan. Um, Ramadan's a month of, of fasting for many Muslims for um, like prayer and reflection and community um, and, and extra, extra prayer, I would say. Um, also, uh, the current leader of, of Israel, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi, uh, as he's known, has struggled to put together a government. Um, and that, and that, that'll be important for for Israel, it's it's like many European um, parliamentary democracies. You have to put together like governing coalitions. And while Netanyahu was elected, he hasn't been able to put together a government effectively um, over you know the last since he's been elected. Uh, all right. So May tenth, there is a is a mosque where the Al Aska Mosque, and it's it's in Jerusalem, and Muslims are, are there praying, and there is a clash with their Israeli forces. So uh, Israeli forces end up firing like rubber bullets, tear gas, uh, stun grenades, uh, and now there are clashes between. There's kind of obviously like a, a reaction to that from the Palestinians. Uh, I would say you know, Jews, perhaps far right Jews, some might call them, are, are coming out in, in, in support of the police, and now they're clashing with Palestinians as well. So there's that one issue that's that's happening. May 10th is. Uh, is you know where when, when this all re- really pops off. Um, also, capping that day is uh, something called Jerusalem Day, where Israelis uh, march through the city of Jerusalem, and it's to celebrate the the claiming of Jerusalem as the capital of the the Israeli state. And you know, it's a very much a, a nationalist, prideful. You're you're waving Israeli flags and claiming kind of claiming Jerusalem as your own, as your city. Um, so this is all happening. Tension, tensions are quite high. Uh, and the final thing that had been in the news over the past few weeks in the region was that, as, as Ricky mentioned, like there had been, there have long been settlements that Israel has been pushing into what Israel considers their land, what Palestinians consider that traditional land. And um, there's a, there was a particular neighborhood uh, I'm quite sure that I'm not going to pronounce it right. Um, Sheikh Jarrah, Sheikh Jarrah, um, and where Israelis are trying to evict Palestinians f- from their homes. Um, the Israelis believe that this is their ancestral homeland, that they have property rights here. The court cases in Israel have declared that these Israeli settlers have the property rights. Um, Palestinians, these families have largely lived there for decades, if not generations. They're saying, you're kicking us out of our homes. These are the whole, only homes we've ever known. Uh, again, like all, everything with this saga, there are two very different narratives here. 
Uh, and so there have been there were videos even previous to May 10th that were kind of going viral of you know, these Palestinians being confronting the, the Israelis saying, like, you're you're kicking us out of our homes, like you're going, we're going to be homeless, and you're kind of coming in here, live here. And Israelis pretty much saying, it's not me, I'm not doing that. Like, this is, I believe that I have right to this land, the courts telling me I have a right to it. So tensions couldn't be any higher. Um, I believe the night of May 10th, Hamas, which is uh, an organization of Palestinian or military organization. And they also, so they have kind of two branches, a military side to them, a more um, diplomatic political side to them. Um, several countries in the world consider Hamas um, a terrorist organization. We'll get more into that later, but those countries include the United States, uh, the European Union, Japan, et cetera. Um, other countries just term the military arm of Hamas as Terrorist organizations, countries like the United Kingdom, um, other people, other countries consider Hamas uh, just like almost like another government and recognize it. So countries, perhaps like China, Soviet Union. Uh, so Hamas starts firing rockets into Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem uh, into Israel. Israel quite famously has what's known as the Iron Dome, which is objectively, I think, the coolest defense system in the world. Um, people might have seen videos of you know Hamas is firing hundreds and then thousands of rockets over the course of the past few weeks. The Iron Dome is largely is an anti-artillery um, you know, defense system and is largely you know, knocking many of them down, um, but not all of them. And so that's kind of where it, it all happened and where the violence now, once Hamas is starting to fire rockets into you know, Israel, Israel is coming back and Israel has uh, an incredibly strong defense force, and they are coming back and retaliating by bombing places in Gaza and bringing um, you know, their their infantry, advancing them uh, into parts of Gaza as well. What I miss, Rick? Where do you want to pick up? I I, I mean, I think that that is um, sort of an accurate description of the events. I, I think perhaps you know underpinning. All of this um, is is just a situation for Palestinian people where they live under a state of um, of occupation in the in these areas like the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, um, and so so I think you know one of the one of the and, and and this is where the discussion gets gets very challenging, but you know. A, a lot of the the headline news articles will say things like um, Hamas fires 150 or so rockets. Israel responds with airstrikes, and um, I think one of the things that is important to understand is the the relative scales of of each of these things. So we you know certainly talked about the Iron Dome, which I think Israel was reporting was knocking out over 90 percent of the rockets that were coming in, but that's still 10% um, of rocket penetration. And, and really in order to, you know, get a city under lockdown, it's, it, it doesn't take much. Right. But it, it is also like, these are homemade rockets that get fired out of like lead pipes and, you know, RPGs that mo- half of them go in the wrong direction. The other half are, you know, falling, hundreds and hundreds of yards short. This is what Hamas is working with. Israel, on the other hand, um, you know, one of the most well-funded and structured militaries for a country of its size, if not the most. Um, 
you know, understandably so they live in, in an area where their neighbors are hostile to their very existence. But when we talk about airstrikes, we're, we're talking about fighter jets coming over and dropping significant payloads on civilian areas. Now you're certainly going to hear stories about, well, they, you know, they, they sign uh, sound sirens and tell people to get out of the way. But the reality of the situation is these people live under, I mean, they live in crowded quarters. There are over 2 million Palestinians that live in, in these neighborhoods and like, where are they going to go? Um, And it's, and it's one of those things where there is, there is certainly a lot of, you know, are, you know, you can argue about what, what's precipitating what, who, who's leading to water or who has the right to, to do what in, in this situation. Um, but the, the thing that I felt like get, that gets lost in the, in the headlines and this isn't it, it, well, I'm not even sure if this is to say what's right or what's wrong, but this is, certainly to say that there is the, like the devastation that was felt on in these 12 days um, was predominantly felt in these Palestinian neighborhoods by Palestinian civilians, we should also note. And there is certainly a distinction between those people and Hamas, who, although they ha- had actually been elected um, to sort of the, you know, they had pushed out the, the Fatah party in like 2006 or seven, there haven't been elections in Palestine in like, in like over 10 years. Um, so it's, it's not to say that these are like the representatives of the people. This is a group of people that, that run Palestine surely, but the people that have suffered here are the civilians in Palestine. Um, and I think that that's, that that is a story that really tries to paint two, you know, Israelis against Palestinians. But I think it's very difficult because what's really going on is you have the Israeli government in one hand, and then you have Hamas in the other hand, and then you have the civilians getting caught um, in between. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that's the, really the case with any war that ever goes on, no? Yeah, but all right. So, so I think, you know, some, something that I heard a lot of um, in defense of Israel was that, well, Hamas is launching rockets from within Gaza, within civilian areas. And so therefore they're committing a war crime. And, you know, what do you expect us to do? And I think in, in, a, in a normal war, you have kind of like battlegrounds, um, well, and what even really falls into a normal, right. historically right. We've always had this kind of, um, yeah, these, these kinds of things, but there is in, in, a, I guess, in a more normal conflict, like two groups of relatively equal size. And that's how, you know, that's, that's how these things start. And I think where we are now is, is, is a different place. Um, but I think I, I mean I guess you're you're certainly right to point out that civilian casualties are not abnormal for war. Yeah, I don't. Uh, we're going to get to the United States' role in, in all of this shortly. But you know, just trying to think about like when you say like quote unquote normal wars, if we look at wars in the 20th century and really even the latter half of, of 
I mean, latter half of the 20th century and in the, in the 21st century, a lot of it is fought by countries, governments, organizations that have vastly different, you know, sizes of power and, and military might and budgets and, and people, you know, be since World War II, there hasn't really been a major war that you could quote unquote say was like fair, you know, and, and so, uh, yeah, it, it's hard because I think when the United States gets involved in, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and wherever else in the United States is, you know, brought to account to any extent that it actually is for, you know, killing civilians. And it's, it seems like there's even, there's less of a defense there because we're in other people's countries dealing with it. You know, when, you know, Israel, as, as you rightly noted, you know, pound for pound probably has the the greatest military in the world. Not that it's like, it's overall the greatest military, but pound for pound, I think you're right to, to say that it probably is. Um, and as you said, it, it's necessary because, you know, since, the, the founding of the Israeli state in 1948, like you said, they've been fighting and we kind of glossed over it because the history was taken long enough as it is. But like we, you could have pointed to like the 1967 war when Israel had to fight against Egypt, you know, Lebanon, Syria, and it, Israel has literally been fighting for its life. And it's the reason why their military is so strong, why so many, why they have policies to make sure that most people in their country um, are, are trained militarily and, and spend some time serving in the military. Um, and why their defense is, is so strong. Uh, it, it's, it's a little hard. I, I hear your point. It reminds me kind of like a similar point. I don't know if you heard, like Trevor Noah kind of made a similar point where he's like big brother, little brother, and he got some backlash on that. And I'm not saying you're exactly saying that, but he was kind of like, Israel, you know, like your relative strength compared to Palestine. At some point you can't, you know, if your little brother hits you, you can't hit them back just the same way because it's, it's not fair. Like, you know, the damage you're going to do versus the damage they're going to do. Uh, at the same time, like that's really easy for Hamas to say, right? Is they're firing rockets in there. And like you said, these are not like high quality, sophisticated rockets, but that's not to say one, that they don't do damage. And two, that you force everyone to live in fear. And really three, it costs millions of dollars to run this Iron Dome. And you have to shoot, when you have to shoot down hundreds and thousands of rockets over the course of several days, you're really just trying to exhaust their defense system. Uh, and then, so yeah. And then when Hamas is doing that and then like, you know, is working within largely civilian territory, then they, I don't think they don't, they get to sit back and then claim like, Hey, look at, look at all the civilian casualties that Israel is doing and try to claim like victim here when you might have started this, this whole thing. You don't get to sit back and now claim the moral high ground just because, you know, Israel was responding to you where you are. Yeah. You know, so, all right. So this is, I think the, the crux of the issue, right, is that, that that people expect somebody to have a moral ground, that you have to be able to say, all right, well, these guys did this first, so what they're doing makes them, you know, you're, you, you've identified the bad guy, they're in fact, you know, the other side is is de facto now the good guy. And I, and I, I guess what I'm saying is, and I, and I hear your point about prior conflicts, and I think this is where we are starting to get somewhere in like the 21st century in that we can't just say um, that like, well, well, you know, Hamas fired some rockets from, from Gaza. So obviously Israel has to go bomb Gaza, right? Because at, at the end of the day, civilian lives should matter 
no matter where they are. Um, and, and, and this is, I, I think this is the, the broader point. It's like, there doesn't necessarily have to be um, the good guy and the bad guy, but we know who the victims are and the victims by and large are Palestinian civilians that are getting, you know, they get crushed in every one of these. Um, and, and you could blame Hamas. Sure. Uh, but you know, the, I would, I would argue that the large part of the existence of Hamas or the continuation of the existence of Hamas is not just rooted in like an overall desire for the destruction of the state of Israel. It is a reflection of the desperation of the people that live there that feel like the international community has forsaken us. We live under occupation uh, without resources, without opportunities, um, you know, in borderline poverty. And this is, these are the conditions that breed that, you know, that breed whatever terrorists, whatever that, that word really means. And so of course they're going to fire from within civilian populations. If they're, they all go stand out in the desert in one place, like that's one airstrike and they're all gone. Like, what are they going to do? I mean, of course, but I mean, that's the classic, like terrorist or way right is to is to then use like women and children as shields and then say like look look at what they're look at what this other side is doing to us but at the same time they are doing it right like it is it does not even even if you can say that hamas is is contributing at the end of the day it is the israeli bombs that are killing those people in those areas and you could and you can argue well what else are they supposed to do um and i and i think that that is a that's a fair question Um, But at the end of the day, I think it it really comes down to like, you know, what amount of civilian losses on that are potentially not of your own, uh, you know, people, uh, your own citizens becomes too much to, you know, for your security, right? We're talking about, I think, 12 people within Israel were killed. And that's not an insignificant number, but put that against the 250 plus people in Palestine that were killed, the, you know, the 17 hospitals, the 2000, uh, you know, 1000 homes, you know, put, put the, putting those two numbers into context against each other. And it's, and I think it's fair to ask, like, you know, should there not be some proportionality and is there in, is there really no other way other than to airstrike or are the airstrikes in part, like not just to to try and kill Hamas, but also to terrorize, to make people say that if if we fire these rockets, Israel's going to do this, and 100%. that's that's what we should be afraid of, and so then we shouldn't do that, right? Like, what is the purpose? Is is the purpose actually to eliminate you know the the quote unquote enemy here, or is the purpose to kind of to 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 sort of to terrorize? Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's a, that's a fair question. I, I don't disagree with that because I mean, there is somewhat to put in like slang terms like that Israel kind of wants to flex on them and be like, you don't want this smoke. Like if this right. is what you're going to do to us, we will wipe you off the map. And not that I want to like compare them favorably to the United States in this situation, but like when the United States after September 11th, what was like that Toby Keith line? Like, well, we lit up your world, like the 4th of July, like you're going to come after us. We will absolutely end you, you know? And 
I, you're right. I think it's fair to sit back and say, like, the United States wasn't necessarily right in a lot of the things that you know we have done over the last two decades in a lot of these places, and Israel is not necessarily right to do it here. Uh, I, that's a fair point. I I, I want to touch on what you said about the creation of Hamas. So I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. It's founded back, founded back in 1987, after the first intifada, like the you had mentioned, all of the protests. Um, and it, again, to bring it back to the United States, which I guess is just I'm a little more steeped in that kind of history, where we talked about this on a previous the previous episode we did on the Middle East, where, you know, why did Al Qaeda start? Right. It's a lot of it was in response to what they felt was United States occupation or interference in, in their lands. Like when you have no power in the face of a, like an overwhelming power like the United States. We're not condoning turning to like terrorism, but there is a sense of like well, if we're not going to be able to meet them on the battlefield, we're going to have to go to guerrilla warfare. I mean, really, it's the same thing that the fledgling colonies did to, to Britain, right? It's, it's always been when you are, you are weak and you're facing a, what seems like an insurmountable force, you have to go to other ways. And, you know, for the Brits that were here back in, you know, 1777, when, you know, we have colonists like taking pot shots at, at them from farmhouses and ambushing them, like to them, that probably felt like terrorism. Now it's, now it's just, it's it's now and now we're bombing places and firing you know rockets out of lead pipes uh, so whatever i'm sure we could trace that whole lineage uh but yeah like hamas is it's its purpose whether or not you you, you like what what they do and i don't uh is to try to stand up and defend their people and to try to represent their people in a way that they don't feel like fairly or unfairly that they're being represented and defended by you know, other people, the rest of the world. Uh, and I do think this is why, why if we can kind of extend it beyond what happened on May 10th in the last two weeks, where there is criticism, in my opinion, of Israel, where Netanyahu, as, as he's you know, kind of clinging to his political life, has increasingly moved to the right. And, and he has done that. And this is a great show of strength for him, right? Is he can again, bring out the, you know, Israeli, Israeli military and show that under his watch, you're going to be safer than you would under the government, the leadership of somebody else. Um, But Netanyahu has been emboldened the last few years to continue to, to push uh, the Israeli settlements into places that were traditionally Palestinian lands. And I, and like you said, there's two sides to that story. But if if you are one of those families, one of like the 70 people that are getting kicked out of the house that you've been lived in for thousands of years, and you can't turn to the courts because you don't think those courts are made for you, and you you have no power here, you, know, you go to pray at your, your mosque, and you're all of a sudden you're walking out and you're getting tear gassed and rubber bullets pointed at you. Like there is, you can only push a people so far before there is response. And that's the part where I to me, Israel deserves, the Israeli government deserves criticism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, I, I guess I, what I, what I want to understand is like, what is the end game? So there is, you know, for Netanyahu, I think there is, you know, very clear, just like any sort of any leader that is, you know, quote unquote, right wing, it is a it is a very motivating you know you you assume that it is very motivating to your voters to continue to be in this state of 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 conflict where um, 
you know, war means you need somebody to protect you and who better to protect you than someone who's shown that, you know, they're not afraid to go uh, blow some stuff up and, you know, send, send troops in and, and things like that. And they're going to quote unquote defend. Um, I think like politically for him, this is finally seems like potentially like a, a different era in that internationally. And I think this is where maybe we come to talk to about the U S a little bit is that some people are, are starting to look at this situation and, and uh, you know, yeah, and are saying that this this is not sustainable because there are people that live here that are um, by and large parts, you know, civilian populations that live in these areas that are living in conditions that you know we wouldn't we wouldn't allow in any kind of like Western democracy, right? So how can we continue to support something? that is promoting this, this kind of thing. And I think this is, um, you know, as as you mentioned, just like the Israeli government being something um, that, that we can talk critically about because in the United States for a very long time, it was, you know, the quote unquote unwavering support. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more and how the United States figures not only historically into all this, but um, the United States reaction, which has been fascinating in a lot of ways over the last week. So when looking at the United States reaction, there's probably no better place to start than with the president. And uh, President Biden has come under figurative fire from everywhere in the last two weeks with his reaction to Israel, which to me tells me he's doing something right. Like nobody is happy with him. So he must be doing something right. (laughs) Yeah. You're usually, usually in that sense, you're doing something extremely right or extremely wrong. In this case, I, I think he's doing something pretty right. So the first thing he came out with early on the conflict and, and said that Israel has the right to defend itself. He caught a lot of flack for that on, on the, the far left saying that he had been, he was being insensitive to the plight of the Palestinians and all of the human suffering there. And it was just like same old United States, just blindly supporting whatever Israel was doing. Um, obviously cognizant of all that, you know, president Biden a few days later called for, you know, uh, Israel to deescalate, their military maneuvers uh, against the Palestinians. He also released uh, kind of the, some of the transcript of his phone call with Netanyahu in which he had been tougher with Netanyahu in, in private than he was publicly, which to be honest, to, to me, I really respect. I almost wish he hadn't like he, he's clearly releasing the, the transcript for like political reasons because he's under fire from the left, but I really respect him coming out and being supportive of Israel, like a, allowed to the to the world and being like, hey, Israel's one of our you know, closest allies, the United States is going to have its back. 
and then but behind the scenes being like yo you guys gotta chill and, and stop this like that i think that's really good you know politics and diplomacy in my opinion um but of course then he gets he comes out and he's talking tough on israel certainly maybe a little tougher than uh many, if not all of the like previous presidents and <laughs> since the creation of Israel. Uh, and now he's getting flack from the right saying that, look, this president does not stand with Israel. This, this, pal- this president is, you know, being swayed by the, the Twitter mob here at home. And this, this democracy that's out there that has been a staunch U.S. ally for 70 years is now twisting in the wind thanks to, you know, our weak president. Um, again, I have to sit back and say I generally like what Biden has done. Um, but what, what are your what are your thoughts on how he's handled this whole situation? Yeah, Biden is, you know, I will have one just constantly uh, in awe of of how much energy I feel like he has these days versus what it was like on the campaign trail. Like, I've, <laughs> I don't know what they're giving him, but like I could. use. Yeah, I don't want to speculate on that. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't um, want to die. I'd rather let's be head in the sand with that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I completely agree that he is, or, you know, he has long been, and I've often disagreed with a lot of his conclusions, but he has long been like a, a personal relationship diplomacy kind of guy. And, he and Netanyahu, I guess, was just listening to the the Daily the other day, like actually go back um, quite quite a ways to to when you know Biden was um, just a, a senator, um, and so <clears throat> it. I think I totally, without essentially saying you know who is in the right and who is in the wrong. Um, using some of that back channel diplomacy to to try and get something done because I I think he understands especially in in Netanyahu's case that there's a pretty strong personality um, involved in this situation and this is like it 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 feels a little scary but I'm sure people felt this way with like Donald Trump or uh, you know any any other more ex- extreme and, and strong willed type of leader that treading lightly and and making sure that that he knows that I'm talking to him one-on-one and I'm not just blasting out a tweet or, you know, writing an article um, criticizing that, that I'm making my point. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely um, very impressed with that. I think the, the shifting part of the landscape is that um, before it was like it, it was, it was a given hundred percent, if, if somebody fires a rocket, Israel's going to do what it's going to do. And we're going to stand behind them. Um, and I think, and I think that this is, you know, you know, you, you could certainly talk about sort of the pressure from the, the Twitter mob, but, but also like, you know, it's not that hard to objectively say like, well, wait a minute, there are a lot of children being killed in this. Like maybe we could, maybe we can take a, Maybe we could figure out something, some other way of, of dealing with this. Well, yeah. All right. Let's talk about, again, let's go back to history to talk about why this has this recent spate of, I don't want pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, however you want to characterize it. Um, not that it has never existed in the United States, but is is 
far more vocal and visible, certainly at a national level than it has ever been previously. And so let's think about why. So after the creation of Israel in 1948, the United States is one of the very first countries, along with the Soviet Union, actually. That um, they recognize. Yeah. yeah, right. So uh, to to recognize Israel as a state, which is huge for Israel's, you know, in the standing in the international community, you have what has now become, you know, the two most powerful countries in the world, the Soviet Union, the United States, recognizing your right to exist as a state. Uh, big, big deal. And obviously, a lot of that is fueled by guilt over the Holocaust, which at that point is not still totally known the the extent that Jews in Europe and on, under German rule suffered. But there was burgeoning knowledge that the United States had kind of abdicated some of its responsibility, like in, in the international community. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say a lot of guilt and a lot of also anti-Semitism because many of these countries were not willing to take refugees from. Right. from, <laughs> from right. And so cl- classically, right. The United States, when the, the St. Louis comes over, the United States rejects it, Cuba rejects it, sends us back. And, and tragically many people on that ship were killed. That's the most famous example, but the United States for years w- w- was not accepting Jewish refugees who were fleeing not only Germany, but, for large parts of Europe, and we didn't really talk about this earlier, but the reason that the Jewish population in what's now Israel grew so much over, you know, the late 19th and early 20th centuries was because Jews were fleeing from Europe to Israel because they were victims of of wide-scale pogroms and um, mass anti-Semitism. And like you said, the United States and most other countries in the world are not accepting them. So where else do you go? Um, So whatever. The United States has long been a supporter of Israel Maybe it starts off as a guilty reason, but then as Israel becomes a democracy, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, famously, right? And that's another place where as the Cold War unfurls and the United States is looking for allies, Israel is a hugely strategic, important partner to us. And then uh, over the course of time, certainly into more modern days, as the United States and um, several Muslim majority countries become entangled in in, uh, conflict Israel continues to be someone that's also entangled in conflicts with Muslim majority countries. So like, again, our interests continue to align. The United States provides uh, billions and billions of dollars in, in weapons support. And not only that, but all of the intelligence that we share with Israel. So for 70 years, our, our interests have been largely aligned. And I would say the Democrats probably were the more supportive party of, of Israel. I would say it was largely everyone supported them because you couldn't really not support them, afford to not support them. But I would say Democrats may be even stronger because uh, there is an element, there was an element, there still certainly is an element of anti-Semitism within the Republican Party. Like we can't forget about that. Uh, with that said, the the recent criticisms of Israel have come from the left and they've come from, you know, the, the squad, they've come from Ilhan Omar, they've come from AOC, they've come from Rashida Tlaib. Um, and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth I was gonna say, Warren. Also prominent, Jew, prominent Jewish Democrats, John Ossoff, Bernie Sanders. Right. Okay. So that's where I, we, and again, I'll, I can come back to the Republican, the slight split in the Republican party too, but it's been more interesting, I think, to watch the Democrats deal with this because this is the, like I said, the first time a major party, there's been a split in the major party and some of the, the most famous, the most visible Democrats at a national level are coming out as, you know, anti-Israel in this case. Yeah, this is, um, I think, I mean, I, I think this is something that that um, has been bubbling. Um, I won't even, yeah, I mean, has been bubbling below the surface for, for a long 
time, you know, going back to, to when sort of the, the progressive left of the Democratic Party sort of coalesced around Biden um, and, and kind of trying to push forward uh, Democrats in general, you have seen, you know, largely a unified front along um, COVID relief fac- packages, um, trying to, you know, really, as we've talked about, the, the main guy had been Joe Manchin um, and not sort of these more progressive, uh, further left uh, Democrats. They haven't been the ones that have been holding things up or sort of making um, any, you know, the, making waves or whatever. They've sort of been falling in line and kind of what the administration has been putting out, they've been behind. Um, and this is what is, you know, now becoming a major litmus test for progressives, like which side of this issue are, are you on? And I think one of the interesting things that I've followed probably because it's more local um, with Markey, who got a lot of support from uh, from AOC in his Senate campaign against Kennedy, um, you know, largely came out and said that, you know, we, we support Israel's right to defend themselves. And all of a sudden people were like, wait a minute, we thought you were the progressive guy that does the Green New Deal. Like, I thought you were, and he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm Marky. I've been here. I've been here for like 20 years. I kind of say the same things. What do you mean? (laughs) So he was like, this is what I was telling you the whole campaign. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. So, but, so now we're going to see, I think a little bit more of um, a divide in the democratic party, which like, I know, I know people with such a slim majority are like so worried that that means, oh, okay, we, we're not going to be able to get anything done now if, if we, if we stop, if we stop just like automatically towing the line. But personally, I think, I think it's good. I don't think ever we should have a single idea that just continues in perpetuity unchallenged, regardless of like what the situation, like, I don't even want to know what the situation is because I already know what side I'm on. Right. And it's reflective of a split in the Democratic Party between largely older white men, um, no, not exclusively, and a younger, more diverse, uh, yeah, progressive left. The oldest, whitest guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's, it's, we can't like totally cleave it. But like when you say Biden or if you talk about um, Majority Leader Schumer or, um, or uh, you know, Markey that you mentioned, right? And then all of the people that I mentioned on, on the left, it's, well, now that the democratic party and largely for good for not only democratic party, but for the country is more diverse and more representative. And we have a lot of younger people of color uh, who are, who are represented at an, at a national level. Well, they see similarities in oppression and I'm not sure that I totally agree with some of the similarities that people have drawn. But if, if you want to say that, like the, the oppression that, you know, black people have faced in this country those comparisons have been drawn to the the plight of the Palestinians. And if theoretically, if we're going to stand up for injustice here, we have to stand up for injustice everywhere, whether or not Israel is one of our allies. And again, I don't know that I necessarily totally agree with the, the comparisons, but I, I respect the, you know, we can't be, we, we have to be consistent. You know, I've always been in favor of consistency, right? Like if we're going to criticize say the Trump administration for for having unjust policies in and around our country, then we have to be able to criticize the Biden administration if they're going to continue to sell weapons to Israel, who's, you know, potentially terrorizing innocent civilians. 
Yeah. And, and this is where the, the challenge to consistency comes, right? Because I think, um, you know, Netanyahu was in an interview and, and sort of said like, Hey, if somebody is, you know, launching rockets into New York city, like, what would you do? And he's like, he doesn't even let the, whoever was asking him finish. He's like, you know, exactly what you would do, which is, you know, but you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. So like, um, from th- that perspective, it's like, well, just, just look at your own selves in the mirror and tell, tell me that this, is, that you wouldn't be doing exactly what Israel is doing. And I think we are now at a position finally withdrawing troops um, from parts of the Middle East where we can say, I, we made a mistake. Like, I, I think, I think a lot of people for many years um, would have agreed that like, we didn't, we didn't achieve the goals that we set out to achieve through the means that we pursued them. Right. And so now it is incumbent upon us to, to always re-examine, all right, just because we made this mistake in the past, does it, does it mean that we should continue to do that? And it, and it is, yeah, fair. A question for like, what are you standing up for? Israel being a democracy um, in the middle East where there are no democracies, like that is, that is true. But there are other things that are true that you know, there are Arabs that live um, in and around Israel that do not have the same rights as as other people. So uh, can can we say that it is, you know, a full fledged democracy? Can we say that it lives up to the ideals that we have? Um, I don't I, you know, I don't I don't think that's true. And, and it, if so, can we still support it? but also criticize it. It's the same. I feel like it's the same thing that we've talked about before. Like, what does it mean to be patriotic? Does it mean to always believe in and love everything that your that your country is doing? Or does it mean that you want the best for your country? And, and in certain times that means trying to evaluate, Hey, what are we doing? This doesn't seem right. Like let's maybe we'll, let's try, let's do something better. Let's be better. First of all, that was beautifully said. Uh, but to talk about some like the inconsistency really on, on the right, like this, the stuff that you're talking about is really how Trump conducted whatever foreign policy he had was that like, let's reexamine everything. You know, like if we, we've never talked with North Korea before, let, let, let's talk with them. We, we've always just, you know, been best of friends with the European Union and potentially let them walk over us a little bit. Let's reevaluate that relationship too. And so that's really what I think you're saying in what I hope people on the left are saying is that like, it's not bad to reevaluate, you know, your relationship here. And we don't always, we don't need permanent ally, like allies for a hundred percent of the time or enemies a hundred percent of the time, you know, ideally we can be able to push back on allies. You know, if you, it's kind of like you know, two really good friends, right? If you really are good friends, you should be able to push back on each other a little bit and say, yeah, I think that you're a little out of line here. Right. Which I think in many ways is what Biden did, right. By like yeah. going behind, like talking in private instead of like, I'm just going to announce to the world that I think you're, you know, kind of an a-hole. Exactly. Um, right. Uh, I, I, uh, I basically will never take a free pass not to take a shot at Trump Although I, I do in by and large agree with, you know, some of what you said about changing up our strategy when it comes to North Korea, I, w- I will say with the Middle East and just like, oh, you know, Jared, Jared knows the Middle East, he's Jewish or something like he'll fix it, um, was a disastrous idea. And I think, again, like lightly, yeah, I mean, it, it is, there's, there's, there's so much 
there that we'll never untangle it. But one, you know, one of the things that really um, was a blow to sort of the, the Palestinian cause was moving the U.S. embassy um, and establishing it in Jerusalem um, because, you know, for years that was like one thing that we were not really going to touch because it is such a flashpoint. We just, you know, discussed how important that city is to both the, both Judaism and Islam. Um, and it is, there is, you know, I, I, I don't really need to get, get too deep in, in this, in this rabbit hole, but there is, there's like, there were some things good about the way he handled things and some things that were just like, not quite understanding the, the regional, I don't know if dynamics is the right word, but there was, there was a lot, uh, certainly a lot to be desired there as well. Sure. I, I don't disagree that Netanyahu and Israel were a little bit emboldened by Trump kind of taking hands off and, and siding so fully with them. Um, certainly you could point to the benefit of the the four uh, Muslim majority countries that recognized Israel over the course of the last year, um, Bahrain, UAE, we've talked about them before, where, you know, we haven't heard much of them coming out against Israel here, perhaps not as much as they would have in the past. And that that's, you know, probably a benefit to the, to the whole situation over there. Um, yeah. And so I think with that, I think that's a perfect transition to like, what is the long game? What's the end game here? Um, and I want to draw some parallels to to kind of what we the United we the United States did in Afghanistan um, with sort of what's going on um, in the Palestinian territories in West Bank and Gaza and kind of what is the long game. So you know, not that we haven't disclaimed this enough. I'm certainly not suggesting that I have like oh I I've solved this. I know I know what the answer is, but um, I will say that. I think, you know, we have been treating this issue of terror, this issue of terrorism, we have been treating terrorism as if it is, um, you know, as if it is like an army, like the, you know, the terrorists are a a specific set group of people. um, And all we have to do is get rid of them. And we will sort of end these problems, we'll end the the threats to our to our countries, to our societies, to our way of living. Um, and we'll, you know, then we'll be able to just go on with life. Right. Like, I think that was, uh, whatever the, I don't know, I'm no shocking. I was a rock. I, all right. I'm not, I'm not, not going to screw this up, but like, you know, that was kind of the idea in 2001, two, like, Oh, we'll just go into Afghanistan. We'll just wipe them all out. Um, and then we'll leave and then it'll be done. Right. And like, there's not going to be a problem. And similarly, you know, we've had this, like the growing humanitarian crisis in, um, in these areas that have been essentially blockaded by Israel. Um, the sort of the purpose of the blockade is that, you know, when there was a little bit more free movement in the 2000s, you had a number of suicide bombings within Israel, um, from people who came from Gaza um, in there, right? So the the idea is, okay, well, we're not, we're just not going to allow free travel. We're going to restrict goods and things that can be turned into weapons and bombs because there's no way that we're going to allow uh, things to go in there and come back out as as stuff that that's going to harm us and our and our people. And I think, <clears throat> I think the thing that really that that I sort of 
came to realize is, is one, um, I don't think there's ever going to be a, a way that we're going to, you like, you cannot combat terrorism with bombs. I don't, I don't think it works because if the idea is that these people hate us and we cannot figure out why we're certainly not going to bomb them into not hating us. And so these types of offensives are not the right word, but like, you know, trying to control these areas, but effectually making them more bereft of any economic opportunity, not allowing there to be proper infrastructure, making these people more desperate in any one of these areas, I don't think contributes to the long goal of safety and security. Um, And I think, you know, part of what you're saying, you know, we didn't hear too much about, um, about some of those Arab countries coming out and forcefully denouncing what Israel was doing in large part because now they have economic ties with Israel, right? And we've talked about this before with the Marshall Plan in Germany versus what happened after World War I when we, you know, totally imposed all of the restrictions on Germany and we left this huge power vacuum because extremism is feels like, and I'm certainly oversimplifying and I'm lo- I'd love to hear what you think about it, but like it grows out of this desperation and I, and maybe it's naive, but I, I have to feel like if people have those opportunities, if they have safety and security and shelter and food on their tables, that like the destruction of another country is just not going to be top of mind. People have other dreams. They want to be doctors. They want to be teachers. They want to be, uh, they just want to be people. And I think that like, you know, you were right to draw that parallel to the, to, well, I think the parallel may be tenuous, but in a lot of ways, the same way that we were demonizing or criminalizing um, black people in America without knowing anything about them, but assuming that like, you know, in these interactions with police, that they were, that they were, that they are kind of like the other and that they don't have those same aspirations and that in other circumstances, they wouldn't think the way that we think. I think that that is, kind of what contributes to this perpetuation of, of the problem. So I, I'm not even talking about how do you divide territory or land or any of those things that also to me feel a lot like 20th century. Uh, I don't know, to, like the genesis of like 20th century problems, but like today people think about things a little bit differently or maybe they don't. I don't know. What do you think? A lot of good points. There's I mean, a lot. I got in a roll. Whatever. I, the main point I think I agree with you is that opportunity is the, the biggest thing that you can give anybody that any government could give people. I think that has to be the goal here in the United States for all of our people. That's been our problem for far too long is the opportunities didn't exist for far too many people. And it's the same thing that you're pointing to in Palestine or the same thing that I was saying earlier that happened in Saudi Arabia or you know now probably is going to happen in Afghanistan or, or, or Pakistan even. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. And it starts with, you know, Secretary, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was over, um, you know, meeting with Netanyahu uh, just a couple of days ago, but also pledged that he that the United States was going to give, you know, millions of dollars to help rebuild Palestine. And not that that's enough, but you hope with some of this kind of, you know, you know, re-examining our relationship with both of the, with Israel and with Palestine that, you know, maybe 
more humanitarian aid is directed to the Palestinian people and recognizing that, you know, as long as it, we keep the money out of the hands of Hamas, like maybe it does go to the Palestinian Authority and making sure that it goes to, you know, Red Cross and other international organizations that can really, really help people. And hopefully there's, there's more of that. And also like not to, to put aside like the diplomacy aspect of it, of, of the United Nations potentially, and the United States, if Biden is more willing to check, you know, some of Israel's worst impulses, then, then maybe we can start to, to build from here. I mean, that's certainly the hope we always try to, or I always try to be a little bit hopeful, I guess. Uh, I will say, you know, the, when you're talking about like the, the lines, there's a really great movie. Have you ever seen it? The Kingdom of Heaven? You ever seen it? Mm, seen that. So it's, it's a Ridley Scott directed movie. Orlando Bloom stars in it. Um, Eva Green, she's also in Bond movies. She's gorgeous. Uh, <laughs> um, not not topical. Uh, Orlando Bloom's also gorgeous. Whatever it was, <laughs> they were very attractive leads. But whatever, it's about the it's about the Crusades, and uh, it's when the the Muslims um, come in and and retake uh, Jerusalem from from the Christians. And uh, Orlando Bloom character plays one of the Christians who has just lost the city and surrendering it. And he says at the end, they they come to this peace accord where all of the the Christians and Jews are going to be able to leave the city. Uh, peacefully, and the Muslims are going to come in and take control of it. And he says to his his the, the opposing general, um, who's playing the historical figure Salah Adin, um, whom you might have heard of, um, and he says, "What is Jerusalem worth?" And Salah Adin says, "Nothing." And then he takes a couple more steps, and he turns around and says, "Everything." And it's really just like a chill induced night because it's it's like it's that knowledge that look, it's just a piece of land. But it's not just a piece of land, right? It is maybe the most important piece of land in the world. And that's while, you know, the nation state is largely a, a modern invention, that's not going away anytime soon. I mean, that while opportunity, I think, is the right place to start, we can't give up on these lines because these lines, as arbitrary as they are, matter. Yeah. And and I, I think... Um... That that is it, it is uh, a perfect encapsulation of everything that's like right and wrong with this conflict, I guess. Um, but in terms of like, so <laughs> leaving aside the the nation state issue, which is, you know, in 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 some degree potentially the biggest problem but also like maybe not the biggest problem for the people that are suffering the most. Um, and, and that's, then that's what I wonder, because I think, I think what I, what I feel like I'm seeing in, in this 21st century world is that we're starting to come up with different ways to be secure, right? Like when we talk about reimagining the police department, when we talk about, you know, it, it was always in the past, it was how do we protect? It's just too popular. It's, it's, yeah. so, it's okay. Yeah, That's yeah. Really um, you know, and I was on a roll, I swear I was saying Yeah, something. how do we protect people? Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do, how do we protect people? Like, what is the best way to make our society safe? And it had always been like, you know, we fortify, we police, we, um, we do the, we do the things that are, that seem logical. Like how do I build up my defenses? But now, now that we understand that it's not just an us versus them, it's, it, it isn't that they're born 
and I say they, I, like they could really refer to anybody are, are born to hate us or to destroy our way of living. It, it is also very possible that it's just that, that they are in a situation without opportunity in, in desperation and that, and if we solve that, then we're going to solve a large part of these other issues. And quite frankly, like even in, even in Israel's uh, situation where, um, you know, they do, they, you know, they're not losing these wars, you know, the quote unquote wars, right? They're, they're really just not, but their people also live in fear. And so it's, it's one of those things that, that nobody is, especially not the civilians that are in harm's way, nobody is winning. Um, and so that, I don't know that, but, you know, we also, you know, look at, you can look at Germany or some of these other places that were in some of the most dire situations in, in, in World War II and in prior and how those societies have really emerged where like in the 1940s and 50s, you would say, you know, there's no way people can live together in places like this. And so it has it, always felt like this, the Israel and Palestine issue has been so intractable that there's, there's literally no hope for it. But if you, if we really like think about historically, there have been situations like this before. And, and hopefully you may, if we have not found a way, hopefully we are finding our way a little bit. Yeah. Like little channeling Kevin Garnett there from last week, anything is possible. That's it. That's it. All right, uh, when we come back, there's just a few more things that we're going to touch on before we wrap this up. No one will comfort her. Jerusalem weeps alone. So the last thing that we wanted to talk about and didn't feel like it would be right if we didn't mention this in the context of everything that's happened in the last few weeks is the rise in anti-Semitism, uh, not only here in the United States, but uh, across the world, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, the the history of anti-Semitism is, is, is far too long for us to tackle here, but it's been one of the most insidious, longest running, most dangerous, most deadly um, forms of bigotry that this world has, has faced. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of really despicable incidences and, and tragic incidents of, of Jews, uh, like I said, both in this country and you know, across, across the world that have been attacked in the last few weeks. There's been a, a significant rise in anti-Semitic crime, uh, both violent crime against individuals, but also against, you know, synagogues and, and Jewish property. And it has to be acknowledged and condemned by everybody. I, I think it's fair to, to criticize some of the responses when, if people are, you know, really in, 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 you know, going to come out against injustice anywhere, then you need to come out against anti-Semitism and you need to come out against it just as strongly as you would, uh, you know, injustice against black people or, or Palestinians or whomever. Uh, it's not enough to equivocate and say that like, you know, there are victims. Of, of course, in, in Israel and Palestine, there are victims on both sides, but what we're seeing largely in the United States and in Europe and other places is that um, Jews are bearing the brunt of uh, anti-Semitic attacks and, um, you know, again, President Biden has done a good job coming out against that, but you hope that 
it comes across because on both flanks of the far left and the far right, there are anti-Semitic elements and uh, they, they have to just be condemned on, on all fronts. Yeah, I, I think it's well said and, and needed to be said. Um, I think it is it's probably worth noting that that it's that that people should be free to criticize the government of Israel and also criticize anti-Semitism, that these things are not mutually exclusive. Um, and that, that, yeah, I mean, I think you, I won't say anymore. I think you said it right. Yeah, that, that's well said. Um, so a couple other things before we wrap up just really quickly, uh, we would be, again, be remiss if, uh, George Floyd was murdered uh, a year ago this week and don't want to forget about about his death. Not that people are forgetting about it, but it's far too often these things happen where there's, there's outrage. And as we mentioned many on many episodes, this outrage was far greater and far broader and far more lasting than outrage uh, that we've seen over others, you know, murders and deaths. Uh, with that said, there still is a ton of room and need for action and the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act still has not passed uh, you know through Congress and has not gotten to President Biden's desk and I I know people are working on it hard uh, I, I whether it's Cory Booker or Tim Scott or Karen Bass and I know I know that people are really working to put a bill together that can get passed and address a lot of the um, injustices that we still see in our policing but um, with with his death this week, hopefully it renews that energy to, to make the changes that so many people called for in the, in the weeks and months after his, after his death. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's um, these parallels that we see in that, you know, when these events happen, people pay attention and maybe they get involved, maybe they march. Um, But then it's like the aftermath and then you have the quiet period and then people, you know, rightly so, or, you know, rightly so or, or not go back to their, yeah. go back to their, their daily um, lives. And it has been like that for Israelis and Palestinians for a long time. Um, and we've seen it for, uh, for our fellow Americans, our black Americans um, as well. And I think, um, yeah, I'm glad, glad you, uh, glad you brought it up. And finally, uh, Memorial Day this weekend, one, of course, we hope everyone has a long weekend. But as always, I used to remind my kids, like, let's let's not totally forget why we have this day. Um, I'm sure everyone out there knows about Memorial Day is really to remember the fallen soldiers. And you know, as Ricky mentioned, we are, you know, fortunately bringing most, if not all of our troops home um, from you know, Afghanistan in the coming months. Uh, unfortunately, people have continued to die over there in, in recent years and over the last 20 years, a number of young men and women have, have died over there and going back to previous conflicts, um, you know, the Gulf War, the Vietnam War and World War II, certainly we still have a few of those um, survivors around to remind us of all the people that fought and died for us. So um, while we hope everyone has a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, hopefully everyone can take some time and uh, be grateful for what, you know, whether or not we should have been in all of the conflicts that we have been in. Everyone that went over there uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I, and, and that we could all, um, you know, live more safely and more freely. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is always, you know, it's, it's never the soldier. 
um, who who's basically willing to sacrifice everything for their country. Yeah. So um, a lot, as Ricky said at the beginning, uh, if we got things wrong or emphasized or de-emphasized the wrong things, we would love to hear everybody. But if you have gotten this far, we certainly appreciate it as always. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Till next time. See you, bud. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share Opinions we share on that American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes Being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share loud American ideas friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though mainstream may not sell it's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find And change the lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.